This podcast is brought to you by Aldis International, supplying your expert AI and digital transformation staffing needs across the US and Europe. Today, you are listening to our AI in Action series, where leading minds in AI from across the world share their story, success, and advice. AI in Action cuts through the hype and explores the true impact of artificial intelligence in our world today. You're listening to AI in Action. I'm your host, JP Valentine. Our guest today is Phil Moore. Phil is the Senior Director of Engineering at Tenable. Phil, welcome to the show. Thanks, JP. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. So, Phil, let's start with yourself. Can you give us a, a bit of an overview of your journey in tech from where you got started, some of the roles you've held along the way, and, and take us up to today as the Senior Director of Engineering at Tenable? Sure. As a, as a young child, I've always loved building things. Growing up doing Legos, now woodworking, a little bit different. And I always saw writing code as just a different facet of that kind of passion of creating things. And while I was in college, I became very interested in AI. I went to a smaller school, though, didn't have a formal AI program or actually any AI classes at all. But fortunately, my senior year, a couple of students and I talked to our professor into doing a special topics class on it. And that was kind of my first real exposure to the facts of AI versus the fiction, you know, all the books I read growing up. We got to do the philosophy, the ethics, and we actually wrote a fair number of programs on it. Our, I remember our final project was uh, this game Hawaiian Checkers, and it was Konane. And I remember staying up late doing those min max trees, and that was, like I said, it was my first exposure. So I, I really enjoyed it. So. After I graduated college, my plan was to go for my doctorate in cognitive and neuroscience. And uh, I remember my application cover letter talking a lot about my influences and Isaac Asimov and his books and things like that. And But don't ask why. <laughs> I only applied to one school. So this is a habit for me. I did the same for undergrad and it worked out, but it didn't work out so well for grad school. A couple weeks before graduation, I still entered back from the school. And at that point, it's passed most application deadlines at other schools, but fortunately, my advisor had some contacts at another university, pulled some strings, and they let me apply late. And I got into the PhD CS program, fortunately. So a funny side note here, after I graduated, before I started university, I went back to where I grew up, my home, and there was a letter waiting for me. <laughs> I opened it up, it was my acceptance letter for the cognitive and neural science program. <laughs> I put the wrong address on the application. So it's uh, funny how life works out. <laughs> I always wonder what it would have been like otherwise. But I was in grad school and it might have been fortunate. I decided I wasn't a depth first person. I'm more of a breadth person. So after three years, I wrapped up with a master's and just plain old vanilla CS. And while I was figuring out where to go from there, I got an offer to teach at my, my alma mater. So went back there. I was curious to see what that was like, and I really enjoyed it. It was an interesting experience having the students only be three to five years younger than myself, but I really enjoyed it. And you know, I might have done it for a number of years after that, but without a PhD, it's a dead end. So I had some notions of going back for my PhD or doing it while I got a job, but I remember my professor, something he told me at the time, he said, you, once you leave academia, it's going to be academia, it's going to be extremely difficult to come back. And I didn't quite get it at the time, but eventually I did. You know, your mindset shifts. It's 
day, success for me is solving customer problems in a very short time frame. And I know I'm going to oversimplify it here, but academia, you're doing research that may or may not solve a problem sometime in the future. So it's very hard, I've found, to shift between those. I'll have lunch with my professor these days, and he'll tell me what he's working on. And I'm always thinking, yeah, but how do you use that? It's, I understand the long-term implications, but yeah, it's just a hard mindset to kind of change. So after, after I taught, I only taught for one year, I had a short stint in an educational software company, and then I ended up at my current company, Tenable. And I've been here the last 15 years, which is obviously a lifetime in this industry. Mm-hmm. So I started as a software engineer at Tenable, and I was in that area for about eight years, rose up the ranks, became a lead engineer. And as too often the case at smaller software companies, your best software engineers often be promoted into management. So fortunately for me, it worked out. But yeah, the managing and leading teams is a very different skill set. And you know, I found the only way to learn is through experience. You can take those classes, you can read those books, but you really have to live through those situations and deal with them firsthand. So it's been a challenging road. It's been rewarding. I've worked on front end. I've done back end. I've acted as a PM. I've done UX design, worked in the cloud, launched our cloud product. You know, I've worked on-prem and been very fortunate to have a number of great managers along the way to learn from. And I've had this opportunity to watch this small 40-person company grow into a very successful public company with almost 2,000 people today. And that's why I've stuck around here so long. You know, it's never been boring. It's always challenging. Phil, thank you for sharing the, your background. It's such an interesting reflection point as to, to what hap- what would have happened had you gone down the, the cognitive neuroscience route as opposed to the computer science. And would you have still landed in the same place you're at now? Who knows? But I, I think you've touched on, on some points that I definitely want to talk about, which is what's kept you at Tenable for so long. But before we do that, let's take a step back. Tell us about Tenable, who you are as a business, what the mission of the organization is, and then we can jump into your role and how it's evolved over time. And and more importantly, what role AI and and data engineering and data science plays at Tenable? Very briefly, what we do at Tenable is we help our customers understand and manage their cybersecurity risk. And so for those not familiar with vulnerability management, it boils down to three steps. First, you want to, you, what are all the potentially exploitable vulnerabilities our customers have across their assets, from your laptops to your servers, to your web applications, to your cloud services and infrastructure. So you want to have that visibility into what's going on there. The next step is predict. Okay, I'm sorry, prioritize. Okay, I know what's out there. Now I want to figure out what am I going to address? Which of these vulnerabilities am I going to handle first. And finally, you act. You actually go out and you mitigate those vulnerabilities. Maybe it's a patch, maybe it's upgrading your operating system, or maybe you put some compensating controls in like a firewall rule or something like that. So at a very high level, that is what the company does. And we offer various sensors to discover those different types of assets. And then we have platforms, we have an on-prem and a cloud platform that allows customers to aggregate that data and manage it. So they get this one holistic view of what's going on. They can understand their comprehensive risk from there. Thank you for that, Phil. I appreciate it. I, I want to spend a bit of time now understanding the, what role data science plays behind the scenes at Tenable, from make, helping make better business decisions to also when you're actually implementing the, the product with customers. Can you give us some insight into what that's like? One of the Biggest challenges for our customers is prioritization. There's so many vulnerabilities out there. Most of our customers can't patch them all. Last year, there was over 18,000 new vulnerabilities discovered. That's almost a 200% increase from 2015. 
And most companies have these modest size security teams. So it's essential they are spending their time wisely. And the reality is for most vulnerabilities, a working exploit is never developed. Any given year, you've probably got about five to 10% of those vulnerabilities are gonna have a public exploit developed against them. An even smaller subset of those vulnerabilities are actually actively weaponized and employed by nefarious people. So the logical solution here is, okay, let's prioritize those vulns. And most organizations use CVSS, it's a common vulnerability scoring system to prioritize their vulnerability management efforts. It's free, it's open industry standard, it's a framework for assessing severity of vulnerabilities. Problem is, it doesn't provide insight into which vulnerabilities are likely to be exploited in the near term. What it does is it just focuses on, okay, here's the impact that's gonna happen if this vulnerability was exploited, which is important, but again, if you have thousands of vulnerabilities, you need to know which ones are gonna be exploited soon. And on average, for the CVSS, over 60% of their vulnerability ratings are high or critical. So it comes back to the, if everything's important, nothing is important. So the data science team at Tenable, they looked at this problem, they said, how can we help? They want, the ultimate goal is, okay, how do we take these vulnerabilities and tell customers these are the ones that are most likely to be exploited in the near future. And what the team ended up doing is developing a new scoring system called VPR, Vulnerability Priority Rating. And this builds on the strengths of CBSS because CBSS does a lot right, but it addresses that threat issue by using machine learning to better assess the actual likelihood of an exploit. And they do this by looking at a wide variety of issues, information. They look at the dark web, they look at the underground forums, they're looking at social media, security forums, and blogs, the number of days since the last threat activity. They take all this data together and they build a model to figure out, okay, what's a more likely reasonable threat activity for this? And this allows them to predict when it'll be exploited much, at a much higher probability. And unlike CVSS, VPR's score is updated daily. The threat from a vuln is not static, so the score probably shouldn't be either. And so that sounds great, but you know, how do we judge success of those teams? We looked at two things. Does it prioritize fewer vulns? And are those prioritized vulns the ones actually getting exploited? And so for the first one, we looked at, like I mentioned previously, 60% of CVS vulns, CVSS ratings are high or greater. Only 4% of VPR are high or greater. So definitely a much smaller set for our customers to have to deal with there. But the other piece of it is accuracy. You know, if it doesn't do our customers any good if we're prioritizing fewer vulns, but they're not the right ones. They're not the ones getting exploited. So what we did is one way to estimate how a re health remediation prioritization strategy will perform is to use historical data to calculate its risk coverage. And you can kind of think of risk coverage as the percentage of vulnerabilities that should have been remediated as correctly predicted by the model. So if we had 100 vulns that had threat activity and the model correctly predicted, say, 60 of those, then the risk coverage is 60. So using the data, I think this is from a study we did last year. If you look at the top 5,000 vulns by score, BPR correctly predicted over 60% of those versus the CVSS traditional only predicted less than 10% of them. So you know, using VPR, our customers can save tons of time and they can do it with confidence. So that was a really big win. We were really happy with putting that out. And that's, that's about two or three years old at this point. And the team continues to work on it, refine it, 
pulling in more data sources or adding some human intervention we found sometimes was the model wouldn't quite work. And then we also are trying to narrow, you know, I said we're updating it daily, we're trying to get that even down even further. You are listening to the Aldis Podcast. When you're looking to scale your team, or if you are interested in showcasing your company in a future episode, reach out today. Or if you're in the market for a new role, visit our website to view open positions, www.aldis.com. Phil, I want to now understand the from the inside, what it looks like, particularly with your engineering team. What are the different types of skill sets required? How do you guys work with and alongside data and analytics and a typical project life cycle? Sure, we have our dedicated data science team. They're actually mostly based out of uh, Ireland. And so data science, data engineering, and they're working on with our our pool of data. We got a, some very good data from our customers that are willing to share with us and allows us to get insight into what our customers are doing. So then we take that and we say, okay, what are some of the problems we need to solve? Like I mentioned the VPR, that prioritization. Another one is asset criticality. You know, okay, that's great. Which vulns are going to be exploited? The vulnerability on a printer is a lot different than the vulnerability on a CEO's laptop. The team can use data like that and they have projects like that. So once they identify a problem, they come up with using machine learning, figure out some algorithms, then the the product team, so we have, like I mentioned before, we have two platform product teams, one for on-prem and in the cloud. They can take those algorithms and they incorporate those into the product to actually allow the customers to use the uh, learnings that we found. Bill, I, w- I want to spend a bit of time talking about the impact that you and your team and everyone at Tenable is having for your customers. You and I spoke about it previously, and there's some really good examples of just how much of an impact Tenable can have. So is there any stories or recent examples that you could speak to that would illustrate just how big an impact you're having? Sure. Every week there's at least one, probably more than one, article about another company being attacked. And the impact of these attacks, they range from, you know, obviously lost revenue, reputational damage, there's plenty of examples of those, major disruptions to customers, we had the uh, oil pipeline one not too long ago, to even death, unfortunately. I read an article this weekend about, you know, a hospital that had ransomware and people actually, they think it's likely they died from that. So. We've always had cyber attacks. They've been there since the beginning of the internet. But the severity of these and the frequency has drastically increased in recent history, and there's very little sign of them slowing down. It's very important to be able to give companies the tools they need to understand the risk they're carrying, and so they can address it. They can go, okay, here's our problem. Here's what we need to do to take care of it. Because at the end of the day, it's almost that simple. If customers were able to address all the risk, then this wouldn't be a problem. It's easier said than done. And one of our key tenets at Tenable, it's written on all the walls in the office, is you know what we do matters. And it's very easy to believe that. Because again, you just look in the news about what's going on. It's very prevalent. Phil, you've stayed with Tenable for over 15 years now, and you've you've held many roles within the business and gradually worked your way up into a senior leadership position. What's kept you there so long? As you mentioned in your intro, 15 years is a lifetime in the tech world, but clearly you've stayed because you've felt engaged. So give us some insight into what your journey has been like and what's kept you there so long. 
Sure. <laughs> and I'll say it's not like every day I've been like, I don't want to leave here. There's been occasional times where I've you know, thought about departing, but something's always pulled me back. I remember the very first one, I was thinking about heading out to Seattle and hopping in that hot market. And we pitched the CEO at that time a project saying, hey, can we rewrite this entire product from ground up? We think it'd be great. And he said, sure. Engineers love the opportunity to write things from ground up. There's always been something that when I got close to jumping would pull me back in. And I think something, I think probably our second CEO, third CPO. There's been a lot of, despite kind of the turnover in the company, this culture has kept, it's, it's always been, it's this, I guess, this culture of growth. It's, they realize, hey, we're not perfect now, but we're trending toward always getting better. It's that arc of always trying to be better, always trying to do better. And I like being part of that. I like actually helping to grow the company. And I like to tell people who are like, yes, I've been at one company for 15 years, but it's actually been a number of companies. So you had the startup phase, things look very different there. You wear a lot of different hats. Like I mentioned earlier, I've done a PM, I've done UX, done front and back. And a lot of that was during the startup phase. And then you go into the, the pre-IPO phase, getting ready for that. And that's a very different feel where you start to get the more traditional roles. And then you move to post-IPO and you have a very different set of concerns and uh, challenges. So it's been fascinating to be able to experience all those in this familiar setting. And like I said, it's always been challenging. If it ever got boring, I would be out of here in a day, but it's never boring. And I think I mentioned at the start too, I've been very fortunate to have a set of managers who've helped guide me and help grow me. So it's another thing that's been great. I don't have to go elsewhere to get these learnings because we bring in a lot of talented folks. I can learn from those. And it's, yeah, it's been a great experience. Staying on the topic of the environment at Tenable and why it's a great place to be. Obviously, coming coming off the back of the, the impact of, of COVID, a lot of organizations have been severely disrupted. But one of the positives has been a, a shift towards uh, further investment into AI, digital transformation, and all of the various projects that come with that. With that shift of investment, you're seeing a, a, a significant increase in demand for your services. And with that, there's you need to grow as a business. So could you give us some insight into what for 2022 and, and in terms of headcount, where you expect the team to be and, and what you're most excited about? Sure. We are growing massively. We've just closed another acquisition to explain, expand our cloud reach, and we're expanding across the world. We've got a hub in Ireland that we're growing out more of the data science team. We've got a new project we're spinning up. I don't know how much I can say about that, but it's very going to be a lot of data science behind that. Really excited about that project. So doing a lot of hiring there. And then we're also in the new hub in India recently, almost doubling the team size there as well. There's lots of potential, lots of growth. As I mentioned, cybersecurity is going to continue to be an issue. So there's no, no lack of problems to solve there. So what I'm most excited about is one of the perennial concerns of, uh, I guess, engineering leader is lack of people. And I think in 2022, we're going to be able to address that. We're going to have the capacity to hopefully work on all these exciting projects that we've got laid out before us. We've had a long roadmap, and now we're actually going to get to that because, like I said, it's, it's, it's a very exciting year. And we're going to finally have that headcount we've been looking for a long time. But with, I think, as you mentioned, COVID, yeah, things are up in the air. So hiring's been hiring's been an interesting challenge this 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 past year for sure. Bill, final question from me then. As the, the senior director of the engineering group, you, you're dealing with so many different types of engineers, your front end, back end, data engineers, specifically folk 
focusing on the data engineering aspect, which is a large percentage of our audience. When you're speaking to candidates about the, the potential to join Tenable, what is it that you tell them? What sort of interesting projects are they going to be working on and why Tenable is, is a place for them to join over some of the, the other interesting opportunities that exist? I would circle back to the part of what we do matters. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunities out there, a lot of different companies, but I feel like we're addressing such a core central problem that's impacting so many customers today to be able to to have an impact on that. I would, yeah, I think that is a great opportunity. Like I said, we have, we're using a lot of the latest technologies for in the cloud. We have access to a lot of data to, to better understand what our customers do and how they're doing and how we can help them. So I think that's, yeah, I think that's one of the biggest pitches is doing something that really matters. Absolutely. Yeah, work that has an impact. Phil, thank you so much for coming on today. I appreciate you talking to us, sharing your own background and those inflection points. Tenable, obviously having a huge impact for your customers and you've stayed there for, for a number of years now because the work is enjoyable and it's challenging and it's fun and it sounds like it's a, a great place for engineers who want to have an impact. We appreciate you coming on and wish you and, and everyone there at Tenable the best of luck in the years ahead. Thank you so much JP, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Aldis Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any Android podcast of choice. You can also head over to our website, www.aldis.com, to listen to more podcasts, view our open roles, and stay up to date with industry news. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more great episodes coming very soon.